Please turn once again to that portion of the Bible that we have read from the book of Ephesians. The epistle of Paul the Apostle to the Ephesians, to the church in Ephesus. Ephesians and the first chapter, and I'll be reading from verses 5 and 6. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. Hear now the most holy word of the living and true God. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. And especially these words, to the praise of the glory of his grace. To the praise of the glory of his grace. As we can plainly see, the context for our sermon this morning is none other than the doctrine of predestination. For we read here in the opening of verse 5, the fifth verse, that God the Father, having predestinated us, and so on. And so, there may be some who would say, oh no, not this doctrine, not the doctrine of predestination. It has caused so much heat and trouble and debate and confusion in the church of God. Why are you going to take up this topic? And I'm also reminded of the warning that we read in our Confession of Faith, in the Westminster Confession of Faith in the third chapter, where it says that the doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care. Special prudence and care. The Puritan John Trapp similarly warns us that the doctrine hereof, men should not adventure to teach till they have well learned and digested it. I think this is a sad thing, my brothers and sisters, that predestination has been known for the conflict, for being at the center of so much conflict. Why do I say this is a sad thing? It's a sad thing, first of all, because this is a biblical term. We see the word predestination in the Holy Word of God. We have it here before us this morning, again in the fifth verse of this first chapter of Ephesians, that God, having predestinated us. And so the term is here. And it's not only here, but it's in several other places in the Scripture. We cannot deny it. We cannot deny that this doctrine of predestination is a biblical doctrine. It's not some fancy that John Calvin some 500 years ago in Geneva came up with. This is the teaching of the Word of God. And so I tell you also that as Christians, we are obligated to understand it. Why is that? 
It's because you see part of our sanctification in Christ includes our growing in the knowledge of the word of God. You cannot have sanctification without the word of God. Sanctify them in thy truth, the Lord said. Thy word is the truth. We are duty-bound, I say, as believers to come to a knowledge and to an understanding of the things that are in the Scripture. And that includes this doctrine, the doctrine of predestination. Now, when I say that, I don't mean that then we should have license to speculate beyond what Scripture reveals to us regarding the doctrine of predestination. No, it was Calvin himself who warned several times, almost ad nauseum in the Institutes, that we should not go beyond the Scripture, that we should not speculate about things having to do with faith and life that are beyond the Word of God. And I'm also reminded of a text in Deuteronomy, chapter 29, verse 29, where it says that the secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. You see, there are things that God has revealed on the one hand, And there are things that the scripture here calls secret. That is, there are things that he's not revealed. The things that are secret, we read, belong to God. That is, those secret things don't belong to us because they haven't been given to us by the Holy Spirit in the word of God. Those secret things belong unto God, so we should not try to pry into those secret things. We should not try to speculate beyond what is revealed to us in the Word of God, even about this great doctrine of predestination. And remember, that does not mean that the election of God is arbitrary. It's just that it's secret. But instead, as it says here in Deuteronomy, those things which are revealed do belong to us. What does that mean? If they belong to us, then those are things that we should take hold of, that we should grasp, that we should seek to understand. And I'm not saying that these things will happen overnight, that you're converted one day and the next day you have an understanding of all these things. Of course not. These things take years of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life in the process of sanctification. But nonetheless, we should not come to a point where we say, oh, that's too high for me. That's not for me to understand. If it's in the word of God, it is for us to understand. It belongs to us. And look at this. Not only does it belong to us, but it belongs to our children. What a blessing that is. That we as parents have that great privilege to share the word of God With our children. And it even belongs to them, it says. It belongs to us and to them. To our children forever. Think about also. When the Lord Jesus Christ was asked, What is the greatest commandment? How did he answer? He said, 
that the greatest commandment is this, that we should love the Lord God with what? With all of our heart, with all of our soul, and what else? With all of our strength, what else? With all of our mind. We are commanded by God, even as Jesus summed up all the law and prophets into this greatest commandment. And mind you, the Ten Commandments is but yet another summary of the moral law. But God's Son, Jesus Christ, summarized all of it, all the commandments of God, into this one and primary commandment, and that is that we should love the Lord God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, and with all of our mind. What does that mean? To love the Lord God with all of our mind. Brothers and sisters, we must put away from us this notion that using the mind or the intellect is somehow not spiritual. We must put away, and and we do see this in certain circles of Christendom, the idea that if you use your mind, that by definition, that means it is void of the Holy Spirit. But that's not the teaching and the orientation of the Bible. No, we are to love the Lord God with all of our mind. Now, again, that doesn't mean that everyone is called to have innumerable bookcases of Reformed theology. No, God hasn't given that interest to everyone. But it does mean that to the extent that something is revealed in the Scripture, we are called to understand it, and we are called to love the Lord God with all of our mind. I say it's also sad that predestination is at the center of so much conflict because this doctrine is so rich and so edifying. Isn't that ironic? Not what you would expect. When there's so much conflict surrounding this doctrine of predestination, to hear that actually it's for our edification. Because you see, everything that is in the Word of God is for our edification. If it is not for our edification, it would not be in the Word of God. And so... The doctrine of predestination, just like all doctrines of the scripture, is for our good, even for our joy, even as it glorifies the Lord God. Now, what I want to do in the sermon this morning, as we look particularly at these words of our text, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which to your either satisfaction or disappointment means that I'm actually not going to talk about predestination. What I want to talk about is something that goes beyond predestination. I want to talk about what the Word of God here in our text teaches us is the grand purpose behind predestination. And so first... What is God's purpose behind predestination? Secondly, I want to go over uh, some various scripture proofs showing that that is indeed the teaching from the Word of God. And I want to argue with you this morning that insofar as the end 
is more important than the means. Insofar as the objective is greater than how we reach that objective, I want to suggest to you this morning that the purpose that God has for predestination is even greater than and more important than the doctrine of predestination itself. Yes, I know that sounds radical, but how else can we understand it? Think about this by way of illustration. If an archer was in a battle, why would he pull out an arrow from his quiver to shoot unless he has targeted the enemy? What is more important, the hitting of the target or the pulling of the arrow out of the quiver and the pulling back on the bow? Is it not true that if it was not for the objective of striking down the enemy, of hitting his mark, what motivation would he have even to pull the arrow out of the quiver? Do you see? And again, I know this is strange because in our circles, we so easily fall into the heat of the debate about predestination and free will that we forget about God's purpose behind it, which we have here in our text this morning. And so I want us to remember this. I want us to think about this whenever we get into a debate with another brother or sister along these lines about predestination or man's free will. I want you to remember that the whole discussion can be framed by this purpose of God. The purpose that God has beyond predestination. And I'm afraid that when we get caught up in the fray and all of our conflict and all of our discussions, we may have missed the primary thing. And so what is that thing? Well, it's what we read here in our text this morning. That as we start in verse 5, God having predestinated us, unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Here's the point. To the praise of the glory of his grace. That is God's purpose in predestinating us. It's to the praise of the glory of his grace. That is the reason. And again, I know this sounds... It's radical, strange. But I want to ask you this morning, if God did not have the purpose of glorifying himself in predestination, would he have done it? You see, I don't mean to minimize predestination. It's, it's a very lofty and a very grave and weighty doctrine. But we're missing, I think, the primary point. It's all to this end. It's to the end of God's glory. And so if God did not have that objective, would he have even predestinated us? I'll take it a step further. If God did not have the objective of his glory as the final and the end goal, would he have even created us? Would he have made anything? You know, it's not as if, like I've heard said, that 
God was lonely and so he made man. That's nonsense. That's blasphemous. No, there was this perfect fellowship within the three persons of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit from all eternity. There was no loneliness there. God didn't create man because he was lonely. You might say, as the scripture reveals, that God created woman because man was lonely. But it wasn't that God created man because he was lonely. And so, again, I want to emphasize this point, that it's really all for the glory of God. It reminds me, if I can just find it here, there was a quote from B.B. Warfield, an old uh, Calvin scholar who taught at Princeton in a lecture called The Theology of Calvin. Warfield takes up this question about what is really at the heart of Calvinism. What is Calvinism really all about? And this is how Warfield answers it. He says, It is the vision of God and his majesty in a word which lies at the foundation of the entirety of Calvinistic thinking. Do you see? We always think about, well, predestination, God's sovereignty, etc. Warfield doesn't come up with those things. Not to discard them, of course. But in terms of the essence of historic Calvinism, he says, to sum it up in a word, It is about God and his majesty. That, I tell you, is what we mean by Calvinism. He goes on to say, It lies then, let me repeat, he says, in a profound apprehension of God in his majesty with the poignant realization, which inevitably accompanies this apprehension, of the relation sustained to God by the creature as such, in other words, the relationship that we have to God the Creator as a creature, but also particularly the relationship that we have with God as such by a sinful creature. Warfield says, the Calvinist is the man who has seen God and who, having seen God in his glory, is filled on the one hand with a sense of his own unworthiness to stand in God's sight as a creature and much more as a sinner on the other hand, while also adoring with wonder that nevertheless this God, this God of majesty, is a God who receives sinners, even you and me. That is what Warfield describes is at the heart of historic Calvinism. Now, the fact that our text this morning teaches us that the glory of God, or rather the praise of the glory of His grace, is the chief end of God predestinating us is not something that I came up with. It is not just some interpretation that I thought would be really uh, cool. We see in historic Protestant commentaries on this text this same interpretation. For example, in the beloved Geneva Bible, in the Marshall Notes, 
First, in the 1560 edition on this text, it says that the principal end of our election is to praise and glorify the grace of God. That's exactly what this verse says. It says, God having predestinated us, and so on, to the praise of the glory of his grace. That's the purpose statement. Similarly, in the 1599 edition of the Geneva Bible, we read on this text that the uttermost and chiefest final cause is the glory of God the Father, who saveth us freely in his Son. The uttermost and chiefest final cause is the glory of God the Father. And it's speaking to this verse that God having predestinated us is to the praise of the glory of his grace. And so I want to offer some more scriptural proofs to show that it is indeed the glory of God that's behind our election, if we be in Christ. And so, first of all, we have to look no further than this immediate passage in Ephesians chapter 1. And I think it's fascinating that we see so many times these same points being repeated within a few verses. Well, how do we understand, by the way, when we see things repeated in the Word of God, what does that tell us? What does that teach us? It teaches us that this is a point of emphasis. So listen. Take note of it. Learn from the Lord as he reveals his word to us. And so, I've been spending this whole time on this phrase in verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace. But look at how similar we find another phrase in verse 12. Let me start in verse 11. In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated, there's that word again, according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that, purpose statement, we should be to the praise of his glory. You see? It's the same doctrine right there, just a few verses later. We should be to the praise of his glory. Now, it may have a little bit of a nuanced difference, that is, here it's more carries the idea that in our lives, as we glorify God in all that we say, think, and do, that we should live as in a way to praise his glory. But it's still the same doctrine, that the purpose and the objective behind God predestinating us is his glory. But wait. There's another place, two verses later, verse 14, and I'll start in verse 13. In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, in whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, here comes, unto the praise of his glory. Unto the praise of his glory. You see, that's the same doctrine as our text. Now here, it is speaking, again, perhaps in a bit of a different nuance. It's speaking about the fruition of our salvation. This rich language that says that we have the Holy Spirit as an earnest or a down payment for our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. What is that? 
The redemption of the purchased possession. Well, it's something that has been purchased already. And there will come a day when the Lord will redeem what he has already purchased. What has he purchased? What is his possession? We are his possession. This is speaking to the great resurrection. There comes a day when the Lord will redeem, that is, he will now finally, in the full fruition of his work of salvation, he's going to claim what rightfully belongs to him. Why? Because he paid for it. My brothers and sisters, he paid for it with his own dear blood. And so you better believe it's his possession. The fullness of our salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ, as we will be resurrected and as God the Son will redeem what he has purchased in us, even by those bodies that rest in their graves. Do we remember that other doctrine that the bodies of saints are members of Christ's body? That though our soul when we die is with the Lord in heaven, our bodies as members of Christ remain in their graves until the resurrection. And so Christ at the resurrection is claiming those members of his body, his possession that he bought with his blood. And again, what is the purpose of all these things? What is the purpose? We read in the word of God, unto the praise of his glory. Unto the praise of his glory. If this was not adequate to demonstrate from the word of God that God's objective, his chief end, in our predestination is his own glory. Let us look to another passage. And I plan just to look at two more places. Romans chapter 9. I'm sure if you were betting men, you figured at some point I would get to this chapter. Romans chapter 9. Now again, just like Ephesians 1, there's so much here that could be unpacked. And so I want to limit ourselves to verses 21 through 24. And I tell you, this speaks to the very same doctrine of our text in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6. Verse 21. Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? Let me just pause there for a moment. You know, most of us may be familiar with this passage and, and we're familiar with this metaphor of the potter. But did you know that this is used in other places in Scripture as well? Uh, you may know that this arguably comes from a Scripture in the Old Testament from Jeremiah 18 in the first six verses, which takes up the same figure of the potter. But it's even used in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20. I think that's interesting that the Lord, as the Holy Spirit, is indicting the Word of God that in His infinite wisdom, He's taken up this figure, this metaphor, numerous times. So let's continue. In verse 22, What if God, willing to show His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? Let's pause again. Well, now, what does that have to do with the potter? And what does verse 21 have to do with verse 22? 
Well, there's this word here that's being used in both. That perhaps is a tie or a link. The word is vessel. You see, the potter, from the same lump, he has the freedom to create one vessel, or if you will, a pot or a vase or a pitcher, whatever it might be. He has the freedom to make one vessel into honor for honorable use. Perhaps it's, uh, he's going to give it much refinement. He's going to make it in a very exceptionally beautiful and lovely way to be used only on special occasions. For example, a vessel unto honor, but from the same lump, he may use it uh, to make a vessel unto dishonor. Well, what does that mean? Well, you know, insofar as this metaphor goes, what does it mean for a potter to make an, a dishonorable vessel? Well, it means something for common use, not for special use, something for everyday use. Maybe it's a, it's a vessel that will be used in cooking. Maybe it's a vessel that would be used for other things because we have not always had the luxury of the modern bathroom. This is what we mean by a vessel unto dishonor. And so now let's go back to verse 21. We see that it uses this word vessel, the vessels of wrath. So you see it's painting this picture for us that God, like a potter, Does he not have the freedom, the implication is here, for God, from the same lump of clay, as it were, to make a vessel of wrath, a vessel of wrath, fitted to destruction. And then in verse 23, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy. Here we have the same word, vessels. So you see that? By parallel, goes back to verse 21 as to the vessel of honor. So now we're speaking of the vessels of mercy. The implication is, like the potter, does not God have the prerogative to create a vessel either for wrath or for mercy? That is what this, this passage is teaching us. And When it says, what if God, and it puts it in this this, uh, form of a question, what if God, don't think that that means like, "Mm, well, maybe God has done it this way. I'm not too sure if that's what the Bible is teaching. No, that's not the reason for the style of a question here. It means, what if God, in other words, you who are hard-hardened to see the purposes of God Just think about this as a possibility. Not that it's not indeed the truth of the matter, but here, just think about this a little bit. What if, I'll put it to you like this. You see, what if God, you see, that's the style of the question. What if God, hmm, yes, what if? What if God was willing to show his wrath? What if it was like this? That God was willing to show his wrath to make his power known, okay, that he endured with much long suffering, for after all, the Lord is angry with the wicked every day. Think of how long suffering the Lord is to put up with the wickedness and evil in the world. Why is God doing that? Well, what if, what if God was willing to do that? Yes. And that he made these vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, fitted to destruction, okay, so that 
he might make known the riches of his glory. That he might make known the riches of his glory. That's why. Even on the vessels of mercy, which, oh no, which he had afore prepared unto glory. What does that mean? Predestination. The vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory. And then you might say, oh, well, you know, that's just, uh, that's just a figure of speech, the potter and all that. We don't really know what he means by vessels here. I mean, what does that mean? Verse 24, even us. You see, the vessels are talking about people. Verse 24, even us, whom he hath called, whom he hath called. Not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. And so, the word of God here is plain and clear. And it's teaching us, again, that the purpose that God had in creating vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory, i.e. predestinated, was so that he might make known the riches of his glory. It's all for God's glory. And that purpose statement can also be applied to verse 22. It's for the same reason that God also created vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. Do you see how many questions this answers, these couple of verses in the Bible? Well, why is there evil in the world? Why is there sin? Why did God permit man to fall into sin? Why, why does God put up with so much evil and wickedness in the world? Why is there so much misery and suffering in the world? Here's the answer. It's so that he might make known the riches of his glory. The riches of his glory. That's what it's all about. That's what's behind all these things. And so I said one more place, and I'll be briefer here. If you just turn page or two over to Romans chapter 11. We have another place here in the Word of God that teaches us the same thing. And here, quite briefly, the context is God's plan of salvation for the Jews and the Gentiles. This is the the broader context of this whole chapter, that God was pleased to shut up the Jews in unbelief so that the Gentiles could come in to the church of God in belief so that the Jews would become jealous of the believing Gentiles so that the Jews could then turn to a true and living faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Messiah. And indeed, it was what has been called the Puritan hope here in this passage that just before the Lord would return, there is going to be this great revival among the Jewish people, among the Jewish nation. And even so, that God will be shown to be faithful in his covenant promises to the Jewish people. And that, I say, at brief, is the context of this chapter. And so we read in verse 32, For God hath concluded them all in unbelief, that he might have mercy upon all. And then Paul, perhaps uh, without 
without helping himself, launches into this kind of ecstasy. In verse 33, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Nobody. Who hath been his counselor? No one. Or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again? In other words, who has made God their debtor? Who has given something to God so that now he's obligated to us? No one. And then it all culminates in this final verse of this 11th chapter of the book of Romans. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. For of him and through him and to him. You see, God is the Alpha and the Omega. God is the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Everything begins and starts from God, but also everything passes through God, as it were, and ends with him. Of him, through him, to him. Of him. God created all things. He made all things. Things that we see, things that we don't see. From eternity past, as a way of speaking, God made his decrees. God predestinated the elect. God had foreordained those of the reprobate. All things come of him and through him. God is not the deist God that created all things like a clock that's wound up and then walks away so that it unwinds unto itself. But through him, God is intimately involved with his creation. He, he preserves and governs all of his creatures and all of their actions from the least action to the greatest. And then all things are to him. That is, all things find their end, their fruition, their completion in God. And also, this phrase, I tell you, also conveys the idea that all things end for the purpose of God's glory. Even as it goes on to say, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Amen. So be it that God is the master of all things and all things will redound to his glory, to his praise forever and ever. Let us pray. O great eternal God and heavenly Father, we do indeed praise you and we thank you for your holy word of God, even to reveal to us your grand scheme of all things, that all things may be for praise of your glory. Teach us, O Lord, then to praise you. Teach us, O Lord, to give you praise that is worthy of you, worthy of your honor, worthy of your glory. Indeed, all of eternity in glory will not be sufficient for us to see the end of your glory and all things. Be with us now, we pray also, in the remainder of this service and throughout this Christian Sabbath day. We pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.